0: Alex Pearson there's no such thing as closure If anybody tells you that they've never been anything through anything like this it started as anger then it becomes being upset and and then you start thinking what are the repercussions did anybody even think about what could happen going forward with a ruling like this every murder is going to be appealed
1: whose charter rights matter more in this country? We will talk about it. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, March 14th. Boy, this time is going really fast. Already into a second day of the big break. A lot of people away. A lot of people getting away. A lot of people are just uh, taking their old foot off the uh, gas pedal. So hope you're kicking back and enjoying it. A lot of us are working. I'll be off next week, so I'm looking forward to that. But here we are, and there is a lot going on, and certainly the case of... You know, Dylan Millard and Mark Smitch. it's going to be in the news all week. And if you listen to the parents, and that was the voice of the Babcocks, you know, if people like that have no hope, why should their daughter's killers have it? These are thrill killers, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch, and other killers like them. And the courts tell us, well, they have to have hope. They must have hope, according to our country's top court, which is why, in part, The convicted killers are in an appeal court all this week in Toronto, and they're appealing whatever they can. They don't care. They can appeal it. They got nothing better to do with their time. They're losers, but they're trying to get their murder convictions uh, in the killing of Laura Babcock, Tim Bosma, and Wayne Millard tossed out. Do whatever they can, uh, and their sentences, which add up to 75 years for Millard and 50 years for Smitch. These are men who are given stacked sentences, meaning instead of serving all their sentences at the same time and then applying for parole on the 25th year, they would have served or still, unless it changes, uh, served 25 years at least for each crime before being given a chance to apply for freedom. And that's how it should be. But of course it, it is not, thanks to our charter. And that's our charter which uh, and our top court, which in May of 20 twenty two ruled that the six life sentences of Alexander Basinet was given for killing six Muslims and almost killing five others at prayer in their mosque it was cruel and unusual punishment. Because the killer would never have hope to get out. The uh, nine judges all agreeing on this, so it was unanimous and said, quote, Such punishments bring the administration of justice into disrepute. They're cruel and unusual by nature. <laughs> I am glad I'm not on that judges panel. I would have like just been aghast. We're talking about a man who tried to kill as many Muslims as he could. He 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 was spraying bullets everywhere. He wanted to kill Muslims at prayer. So if they think keeping him in jail for life is cruel, I mean really? So thanks to that ruling, Besneet 6 25-year-old sent uh, 25-year sentences which would have been 150 years, then turns into six 25-year sentences that are, are all going to be served at once, meaning that he can start to apply for parole in 25 years when his sentence gets there, because he's already served a few years. And the precedent also means that other killers in this country who got stacked sentences, like Smith and Millard, uh can also appeal, appeal their sentences to get out sooner. So, yeah, that is one of the reasons they are in court. They likely won't win. I don't think any of their appeals for the killings. But because of the ruling, it's pretty much guaranteed that their sentences will be shortened and they will be able to apply for parole at the 25-year mark. And in in, in 2011... That's when you could start doing these stack sentences. Judges got the discretion to hand out these longer sentences to those who kill multiple people. But it's rarely, rarely used. I mean, even Bruce MacArthur, remember, he killed eight people in the gay village. Even that guy is going to apply for parole after 25 years. But there are only, to my uh, ability to find them, there are only seven cases of stacked sentences in this country. And they all involve heinous crimes. So it's not a sentence, and it's not a sentencing law that's been abused. But thanks to our charter, those who have you know, committed some of the cruelest of crimes have to be allowed hope for more freedom. I mean, what's cruel and unusual punishment, if you ask me, is the lack of hope victims of violent crime are left with as they spend their life fighting to get justice that I don't think exists anymore. You know, their lives become a series of court appearances where they have to go into court, relive all the crimes, and watch their loved one be reduced to autopsy pictures, pathology reports, witness reports for the whole world to gawk at, and lawyers to argue over. I mean, put yourself in the, in the shoes of the Babcocks, you know, or, or the Bosmas. I mean, Tim Bosma's life was snuffed out. I mean, his body was tossed into an animal incinerator that uh, Dellen Millard had bought to erase his crimes. He thought it was cool. And during the trial, Tim's family had to sit and watch as their child is reduced to ash on a video camera that caught the men watching how this new toy worked. And they thought it was pretty cool. And Tim's mom, she could not get it. You know, she could not get through that. She had to leave the court. And now she and her family have to go through all that stuff again and all the other heinous details of what happened to their child and the Babcocks, too. But in the Babcocks case, they've only got police reports and Their imagination that they're going to have to use to fill in the blanks because Laura's body was never found. I mean, they have no remains and they also don't have the full story of the torture she faced before she, too, was tossed away like a piece of garbage into that incinerator. So we're talking about two men never shown remorse, never shown remorse, an ounce of remorse for what they did because, of course, they didn't do it. They're innocent. They 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 don't deserve these sentences, so that's why they're trying to get out. I mean, they wrote rap songs boasting about what they did because they looked at it as getting street cred. You know, so we live in a country where mandatory minimum sentences for violent offenses are mean, and we have to give thrill killers and mass killers like Alexander B. And, and and Dylan Millard, we have to make sure that they have hope. And so, you know, does the Charter ever think about people like the Bosmas or the Babcocks or those Muslims who killed at prayer and the families left behind to pick up the pieces? Don't they deserve some hope? You know, hope that maybe someone will actually be held to account? Because essentially when you look at the bigger pictures, it really is the victims of violent crime in this country, who get the life sentence. That's the way I see it. So if you ask me, we kind of are going the wrong way on all of these things. I think we can make changes to the, you know, the justice system, but the, the scales of justice, I think, have been tipped so out of balance that, um, that, that they don't even consider the victims. It's all about making sure that the rights of the accused are protected, that we're not too mean to the accused in this country, that they get a second chance and that they're not vilified. I mean it's just they get every chance in the world. But when does the charter everyone cherishes so much in this country actually show some balance? You know that is where we are.
2: spent a lot of time on the subway and it has been bananas.
0: There's just a huge uptick
2: in people who are have nowhere else to be. It's not one that police are equipped to deal with. We need places for people to go. We need supports for people. They need better options.
1: Yeah, they do. Um, but the question I think a lot of people are wondering is, is this TTC now safe all of a sudden? Because the uh, special... Patrol, which added uh, 80 officers who were off-duty and asked to come in on overtime, had been uh, patrolling different routes over the last couple of months, and now that has stopped. And so now we're told that on-duty officers will uh, continue patrolling the uh, routes during their shift, but what we won't see is a dedicated number of officers that are out there. And when you look at some of the numbers, since they put those extra police officers in place, there have been 314 arrests. Among them, they got a firearm seized. There was an individual uh, who was involved in an unprovoked attack on the Spadina car, two assaults with weapons. And uh, we know the program was was temporary. I just don't think people thought it would end quite so soon. When you look at some of the polling that Global News uh, had done with Ipsos last week, it reveals, you know, 44% of those living in Toronto feel unsafe on transit alone and even with friends, they still feel unsafe. So even though we move, you know, a couple of million people a day and the system is considered to be safe when you compare it to other cities, the perception is that it's not. And that is harder to change that attitude. John Bernstein joining me now. He is a city councillor and chair of the TTC Good to have you, John.
2: And thanks for having me.
1: I got to ask, like everyone, are you thinking of running or not running? I know you probably said no. no. Are, you think, are you one of those thinking about running?
2: Well, it does seem like everyone is. Uh, well, Everyone's I, I think,
0: thinking.
2: Well, it's unbelievable how many councillors say that uh, how they've been receiving all these calls of people who said they should <laughs> run. And my response yeah. is, well, if you don't get those calls, it just means you don't have any friends. Um, <laughs> and so I have no desire. I don't, I you know, whether I could win or, or be a good mayor, I think those those questions are secondary. Uh, it's just not in the cards for me. Uh, the big challenge for me will be who, uh, who I'll support. Uh, for that
1: position. Well, there's like a thousand people running. So we'll uh, see, I guess, on uh, a registration day coming up. All right. So let's uh, talk about why um, they were moved. I don't think people knew it was going to kind of happen this quickly. So why was it uh, deemed necessary to stop these uh, 80 extra officers?
2: Yeah, so I mean, ultimately, the police make those decisions. And so I think the question is, why were they there in the first place? Uh, which will answer this question. It was, A, to bring a sense of order back to the TTC. I think there was a sense of disorder. It was to get a, a really good handle on what's going on. And also it was to work with with us to collect the data that's needed so that when uh, the police are involved and when they're doing patrols, whatever those patrols might be, uh, that they're intelligence-based. And I think those boxes have all been checked. Um, but that said, uh, Deputy Pogue has, uh, has committed that should things uh, turn for the worse, then there's always that option to bring the police back. Um, and, and, and furthermore, the police, when I met with them, with the mayor, early on before they were even deployed, they they flat out said, you know, we are not the solution. And I don't think anyone thinks they're the solution. What's happening, what's happened on the TTC is really a reflection of what's going on in the city. And those are bigger questions and we'll need more partners, including the province and the feds, to address them.
1: Yeah, that takes a long time, though, you know, and and I think people are like they want to see results so they can get back on, uh, you know, transit. And and we're still getting attacks. Um, We're not maybe getting kind of like uh, this ongoing revolving door where it was like four or five a day. I mean, but we are, uh, you know, we've got a hate crime reported on the subway that happened, I guess, March 9th at around nine uh, five p.m. with a man brandishing a knife threatening a woman in a hijab. So we still do get these incidents, um, but but to my point on the polling, even even if you know politicians like yourself say, look, overall it's a very safe system. It's this um, it's this notion that it's not safe that that is uh, concerning to people.
2: Oh, one hundred percent. It's the, it's the feeling of not being safe and. Um, And that was one of the things that the the police definitely addressed. But once again, it's not like they're disappearing, it's that they're they're shifting uh, their focus, and they will still be present, and I hope they'll still be present. But they're not the only thing we're doing. We have more security guards, we're hiring more um, special constables, and we have streets to homes folks working with uh, the individuals on the system to, to find them indoor shelter and to get them help. And that's, you know, that is ultimately the challenge. And the police have said uh, to me that one of, you know, even though they've made 220 referrals, which I think is fantastic, that's really not what the police mm-hmm. are there for. And uh, one of the challenges is how many referrals could they have made if we had the space? And those are the bigger questions that need to be solved.
1: Yeah, and those don't happen overnight. I mean, we know we have issues with migrants coming across and who are taking up shelter space because they need supports. Um, a whole bunch of issues that are not going to change overnight. We just don't have enough affordable housing. One of the upsides with the weather getting warmer is I think it will somewhat alleviate the uh, pressure of people having to go and live in in the TTC. So we might see a dip, but overall, like what's the timeline, John, of getting an, a solution? Because, you know, the bottom line is it's got to be solved or it's just going to come back.
2: Well, you're bang on about the warmer weather. And I talked to uh, our CEO, Rick Leary, and and those numbers uh, every year do come back down in terms of once it's warmer, people find other uh, other options. But I don't think there is an ultimate solution. It's going to be a work in progress. A lot has changed from the pandem- pandemic, but there are a lot mm-hmm. of issues that have been around for 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 decades. You know, mental health support, mm-hmm. uh, rehab for people that have drug mm-hmm. issues, and you know, um, in many ways, sort of making it somewhat mandatory for people to actually get the help. Right now, if people refuse the help, then what? Right? And that, and there, so there are a lot of issues. You say absolutely, it takes time. But from what I can tell, we're not even getting uh, the help of our partners now. So yeah. we got yeah, start.
1: well, because they've got their own issues. Like, how do you get someone in mental health care when there's a waiting list to get into mental health care? Like, everything's kind of packed on top of each other as far as problems, problems, problems. There's just no answer, and I just uh, I'm concerned that that this is like uh, going to be a year, two years, if that, uh, before we get an actual solution.
2: Well, I mean, first off, because you know, the need
1: is so great, yeah
2: hundred percent. First of all, it's finding the space for people, right? Uh-huh. So that they so that they don't take shelter uh, on or within the system. I think that's that's the first thing, and that can be accomplished uh, right now. About as you uh, uh, referenced, about a third of our shelter space is, ta- is taken mm-hmm. up by refugees. Well, where's the federal government? Why why isn't there more pressure on them to actually come to the table? So I think if we get... Is anyone state asking?
1: State, I mean, now that John's got I mean, is anyone asking?
2: Yeah, Mayor Tory was amazing with that. But what I what I would say is, where are all these MPs who have been Liberal MPs who have been elected to represent the city? You know, they're riding within the city of Toronto. Where are they? Like their heads are under some sort of cover, and um, you know, they're there when at election time. But when the city actually needs them, where are they? So, but in any event, um, that that's I think that's the first thing we need to need to find space for people. And the police, the police are the sort of, I think, sort of the last uh, option and not the first. And hopefully that we, we can, you know, stem that the tide in, in what's going on. But, you know, as, um, Alex, these are citywide issues. You know, we, said, yeah. we see a lot of random attacks. We saw the, the gentleman killed on the, on the mm-hmm. Danforth. We saw the woman at Young and King, right? And it's all the problems that are migrating on the TTC. And, you know, the TTC is, is about moving people. We're not a, a social service agency, and I think no, we're
1: know. not. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it was a lot. We got a lot of talk, and uh, we've got three different la- layers of government. And sadly, if one of them doesn't come to the table, they all end up uh, kind of hitting each other. We'll keep watching, John. Very much appreciate. It. I sure hope there's a, a solution coming. So uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it.
2: Well, and it'll be a great opportunity to have that conversation in the upcoming mayoral election.
1: That's a good idea. Yes, it is. All right. Thanks, John. And that would be a good mayoral idea. I'll vote for whoever can solve the Roxham Road issue, get rid of sanctuary cities and all that stuff. And, and, and yeah, someone who can actually take the uh, federal government to task on stuff like this because they are supposed to help. And, and funding formula who's running on the funding formula? Because that's what we need in this city of Toronto because we can't afford to pay for all of this stuff. dive into this massive announcement. Big announcement auto investment which uh, starts a week off And news Volkswagen is uh kicking off its first North American battery factory in St. Thomas which is just outside of London and it will make us a major player in the future of the auto industry and of course don't forget Windsor announced also it has a, an EV battery plant coming. So These kinds of announcements are not going to please our neighbors who have made very clear that they want to corner the EV market. And certainly Mr. Biden's made clear that you get all sorts of goodies, you know, if you uh, and he'll offer all these big tax credits to buy American, you know, made electric cars and he'll do whatever. But um, we got this particular plant. So we also had to offer something with it. There's got to be a sweetener in this pot and uh, Volkswagen, um, I don't think they stuck their hand out, but I think it came Uh, with an expectation. Part of this deal will come with a healthy dose of corporate welfare, provincially and federally. The other selling point is the abundance and um, the opportunity we have with special minerals that are crucial to build batteries and, of course, are found at the Ring of Fire, which to date does not have any deal in place. And so what does that mean? for the future of this deal. Flavio Volpe is head of the Automotive Parts Manufacturing Association and I appreciate you joining us Flavio because I know you're on vacation, but uh, it's a pretty big announcement and I know you were a part of it, so thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah, big announcement. So uh, what does vacation mean uh, when you've got good news like this?
1: Hey, you know what? It makes a vacation much, much sweeter, but nonetheless, it is a $7 billion you know, investment, probably more if they uh, expand, it is the creation of seventy five hundred jobs. Uh, you know, when you factor in all the spin-off manufacturing that will will tip it in. But what was the selling feature of Ontario? I mean, once upon a time, as you know, we were the auto, you know, giant here in, in Ontario. Yeah. But what was the selling feature to get Volkswagen back?
0: Well, I'll tell you, um, I, I made the, I put up a tweet this morning that said the anatomy of this deal is a series of things mm-hmm. that came in before it we got off coal-fired generation. So if you're gonna make batteries for electric vehicles, a lot of the debate about transition to electric is how clean is the energy that you draw to make those batteries. Mm -hmm. So we've got very clean energy in Ontario and of course, upstream in Quebec. Also in the NAFTA renegotiations, we added in some rules that said, you've gotta make your core parts at a higher level of local content um, to qualify for a tariff-free sale. And one of the things we stuck in there was the origin of the batteries. And we knew that Mm -hmm. in Canada, course we've got a lot of those raw materials and then you know a credit to the premier the prime minister and their two ministers for a hell of an investment run over the last uh 18 months that saw five the five car makers that are here all invest in retooling to electric vehicles or batteries and those things all played in the mind of volkswagen how do you pick where to do batteries in north america and you know ontario st thomas especially ticked more boxes than any other one.
1: So is there the opportunity to get another plant in the country or in the province? Um, You know, and the other thing is, and the concern would be, you know, we have minerals, but we got to get them out of the ground. And that is a long way off still. And I know we've got certain frameworks put in place with the province. I mean, They've been trying to negotiate with, uh, I think there's five Indigenous groups up at the Ring of Fire, but you have to have yeah. deals with all of them. I think they have deals with two of them, and that's to get these all-season roads built. And then you've got to actually get in there and set up to mine. That takes, it doesn't happen overnight. And so what are we, yeah. how close are they to getting an actual deal to get the Ring of Fire in business and operational?
0: You know, Ring of Fire is, is one source, and of course, I mean, you've outlined very clearly how tough that timeline is going to be, I think what's important here is, is, is the announcement is for a battery plant for 2027 Mm -hmm. and in Quebec, especially I'll use example of a company called Sayona mining that uh, is delivering uh, lithium hydroxide rocks at the end of this quarter, which is the end of this month. And there are others that are coming online in 2025 and 2026. So I think what you'll probably see here is a good mix of Ontario and Quebec feeding into uh plants like this one and the one in Windsor and hopefully one or two of the other ones that uh, we're negotiating it is um this is the best place to make that bet you know the competing jurisdictions in the U.S. um Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of a lot of really good ones a lot of really good manufacturing centers but they don't have the the minerals in the ground you know whether it takes three five or ten years to uh, come out of the ground these plants will run for 20 30 40 years and so uh it's a tough slog uh mm-hmm. but there will be there's enough there will be enough deliveries f- uh, four and five years from now uh for them to make uh for them to have made such a public bet on uh, on ontario
1: yeah and if we truly want to corner the market it's in everyone's interest uh federally provincially to get that you know, to get those agreements in place. So maybe they're dealing, uh, you know, uh, in a different manner on this, but uh, it has been like 20 years where there's been ongoing negotiations and it's just not an overnight um, uh, sell. The other uh, side of this is, um, you know, the, the the Biden government has offered all sorts of, um, you know, subsidies and credits to get into their cars. Yep. Is that part of this deal where we're going to have to be subsidizing all these electric vehicles? Because that—that is, I don't know—I don't know if the taxpayers want to continue to to have to subsidize these cars if they are the future. But is that part of what we're sure. going to have to do?
0: Well, I think you're seeing all the major jurisdictions, especially the ones we're competing against, subsidize both the the vehicle purchase uh, and uh, to some degree the uh, the the manufacturing, the capital invested in the manufacturing. We've seen in Ontario. Uh, with the other five manufacturers that we get a return on investment uh, in three to four years, depending on uh, the terms, you know, of course, we're all listening intently for the terms on this one. These are, Alex, it's a, it's a good public debate. These, this is a plant that will probably, uh, the, the economic activity of the plant will probably be 10 to $12 billion a year. And so when you hear numbers, you know, you, you have to turn around and say, okay, look, 10 to $12 billion a year for 20 years. Uh, and then take a look at, uh, when we see the numbers, the quantum on that, uh, you know, I'll take, I'll take the city that it went to and I'll give full credit to, to the mayor there, Joe Preston, who was, uh, yeah. who was, a a, a a member of parliament in the Harper government when Ford closed there. And I remember talking to him in his capacity as MP at the time and said, you know, you, you know, the, the franchise, you know, this, this major league franchise is gone, you know, uh it's never come back no one's ever gotten a car plant back but hey look if you hang around the hoop i'll be around the hoop there'll be a whole bunch of us uh who've been around that hoop for 10 to 12 years saying st thomas is in that corridor has all of the infrastructure needed to to uh to host the plant but has also got thousands of people who lost to work uh, who are ready to be redeployed and so you know for me this is a bit of a this is a it's kudos to Joe Preston and everybody in Saint Thomas that uh, that that stayed in for the impossible. And this is like uh, I said yesterday the Quebec Nordiques uh, coming back to play at uh, to play at their old arena. This is just, there really is. There's a lot of good public debate that needs to be had. But for the people of Saint Thomas and the region, you know, 2,500 direct jobs, uh, probably 5,000 indirect jobs. Uh, it's an incredible day.
1: Yeah look uh, it, it is i mean uh, my husband's in uh, steel scrap steel so there's lots yeah. of spin off for, for businesses like that it's it's a good Stops. trickle down i mean and and to your point like and give or take on the numbers you might have different numbers but we're talking about 135,000 jobs that the auto sector creates yeah. directly in the province is it are we you know, are we seeing the rebirth of our auto sector? I mean, are we headed, if you're if all the I's are dotted and T's crossed, are we headed for the glory days of what we used to have in this province? Or is, that, uh, is it going to be a different kind of um, auto industry?
0: Uh, I think it's a different kind. The glory days were when we were the low-cost jurisdiction, we made 3 million cars yeah. a year, and that was late 90s. We're yeah. going to make 2 million cars a year, but we're going to make the cars that people want and the cars that, coincidentally, the government is really encouraging and mandating uh, uh, people and organizations to buy and for car makers to make. So uh, in that, the difference between the two, it's the same amount of employment uh, that we had in the late 90s, but this time on uh, electric vehicles, uh, the high value uh, lines that these companies uh, are featuring. And so Mm -hmm. uh, electric vehicles, Alex, for your listeners are you know 100 kilowatts worth of uh, of power creates 800 volt platforms these are connected autonomous vehicles so everybody in that tech corridor from Windsor to uh to uh Ottawa really but you know in the kW all of that all of that really like night rider stuff uh yeah. also gets captured in this and it gives it gives them uh, a stronger foundation as well
1: We need good news these days. We'll take it any which way we can. Congratulations. Enjoy your vacation and we'll see uh, what is next. Appreciate it, Flavio. Thank you, you, Alex. Thank you. That's Flavio Volpe, who was just one of the many people involved in uh, making this deal happen. It has happened. So, uh, still waiting to hear the details of how it happened. One of the ways it happened is because we have to pay things like corporate welfare. You know, once upon a time, the economic engine of this country, uh, you know, was the place everyone wanted to do with business, but. You know, rising energy costs and labor costs, and it got hollowed out. So when we go through the numbers, like how much do we have to pay Volkswagen to come here? You know, the cost of doing business. Just waiting you hear the numbers of how much we pay to get people to, you know, companies to do business here. It is <laughs> staggering how much we have to pay that will do it for me on this uh, Tuesday. We'll see what the day brings, so we can chew on it on Wednesday. Boy, this week's going fast, kinda. I thank Miss Heather Purden, Mr. Corey Manuel. I'm Alex Pearson, and we will be back here nine o'clock Wednesday here on six forty Toronto. <laughs>